0: working lives and how that works and then we go through that theme at a few different angles different lenses so uh, i think this month we started by seeing how that affects a couple of people here in their working lives uh, so seeing kind of on the ground how the um kind of stories of work life work out for um god's people today we then looked at kind of theology of work why we work and then I think last week, or we had Easter, and then last week we looked at um, a film. So we always have a week looking at something arts-based or film-based, and we looked at uh, work life through Steve Jobs' film, and now Graham is going to tie things together uh, through some kind of TED-style communication, so um, picking a particular thing that's perhaps relevant in culture, cultural trends, and he's going to unpack that for us. Good luck. <laughs>
1: So much, Johnny, and um, good evening again, everybody. It's a kind of big brief, isn't it? A TED-style talk. It's a little um, intense in its own kind of way, but um, let's hope that we can wrap up this uh, month thinking about work uh, in a way which is stimulating and um, leaves us uh, enriched at the end of it, rather than diminished. I hope we're living at One of history's hinge points, they occur every so often, and culture and civilization undergo a transition and a new epoch will emerge. 500 years ago, Western Europe was entering a phase of theological, political, and philosophical turmoil with the advent of the Protestant Reformation. We're actually celebrating the 500th anniversary of Martin Luther nailing his 95 theses to the door of Wittenberg Cathedral on October the 31st this year. 230 years ago, the French Revolution began the period that we call modernity, ending with the collapse of the Berlin Wall uh, exactly 200 years afterwards. And in the late 5th and the early 6th century, Europe was emerging from the long period of imperial Roman rule and was on the cusp of what later became known as the Dark Ages. It's not an entirely accurate description, because the centuries which followed saw the establishment of a distinctive and ordered pattern of life, later described as Christendom, which had an ordered society with a rhythm of work, rest, and prayer at its very heart. Now, this period owes a great deal to the life and the writings of an Italian monk named Benedict. His magnum opus, his great work, was the rule of St. Benedict, and it became the inspiration for not just the European monastic movement, but was also profoundly influential on wider society. Now, I've come to understand something of St. Benedict largely through the writings of Rowan Williams, and I'm going to quote some sections from a lengthy essay that he wrote just over 10 years ago. But the essay begins with this claim and this question. Benedictine houses helped to preserve something of the coherence of a religiously focused culture in the uncertain and often chaotic period after the fall of Rome as the new Germanic kingdoms emerged in the West. Is there also a sense in which we can speak of Benedict and his rule as offering an orientation for Europe's future? I want to suggest tonight that our contemporary society has an unbalanced view of work, rest, and prayer, a disordered understanding of creativity, productivity, and recreation. The world of work asserts a semi-divine status in our lives. It offers to make your life, but it may well also take your life. Like any idol, any false god, work can be a great servant, but a terrible master. And the wisdom of these 6th century writings can suggest a helpful corrective. And so tonight we're enlisting the services of Benedict Incorporated, the 6th century management consultants. The rule of St. Benedict comprises 73 chapters concerning almost anything you could imagine to be relevant to life together in community in the 6th century. Typically, it's described as a rule with a capital R. It's less concerned with petty rules and regulations, though there are some of those, but rather is about how our common life is to be ordered, the rule behind and beneath all other rules. It's claimed to be the basis of Western democracy, enshrining, as it does, the idea of a written constitution, hierarchical but personal sovereignty of the prince, the ruler, or the abbot, It embodies the rule of law, and it dignifies the world of human work, labor, and productivity. And it also introduces a degree of democratic process into a non-democratic culture. The rule of St. Benedict is modeled upon the life of a family or a household, with the abbot in the place of the father as head of the household, and all the monks as brothers. The rule was also applied in communities of women under the leadership of an abbess. Now, if an audit were to be produced nowadays of an organization, I think there are three things in particular that the rule of St. Benedict might have to say to us in its report. The first is about our ordering and our use of time. The second is about obedience and discipline. And the third is about participation. So first, the ordering of and the use of time. Benedict believed that our days were to be ordered into periods of work, prayer, and rest. Benedictine monasteries were self-sufficient. They didn't believe that they should be subsidized by anyone else. And so productive work to cultivate crops and to fashion tools, clothing, buildings, and furniture was essential. Rome Williams says this, The monastic life is emphatically not one of subsidized leisure not one in which there is endless time for self-observation. The self that is brought into the light of study and prayer is a self that lives in a material world where crises and limitations call for response. Work is important. But work was not the only thing. The day was typically divided into three sections, eight hours of work, eight hours of prayer, and eight hours of rest and sleep. These periods, though, were interspersed and interwoven together, with sleep and rest occurring at times that would strike us as unusual, and prayer occurring in the middle of the night. In fact, before the widespread use of wax candles, many of the prayers, liturgies, and scripture readings of the Benedictine houses had to be memorized and recited in the dark. Although the day was comprised by a complicated timetable, it was still a deeply ordered program. There was a rhythm to work and to rest, which gave time for self-examination and reflection, time for sleep, time for fellowship, time for productive and essential work. It was a far cry from the chaotic and disordered rhythms of contemporary life. Rome Williams again. We live in a climate where both work and leisure seem to be pervasively misunderstood, where both appear regularly in inhuman and obsessive forms. Time is an undifferentiated continuum in which we either work or consume. Work follows no daily or even weekly rhythms, but is a 24-hour business, sporadically interrupted by what is often a very hectic form of play. It seems we are either producing or being entertained by a vast industry that purports to guess our wants before we ask and leaves us in so many ways passive. And I think that his observation is correct. Because we check our Facebook page and we do our online banking while seated at our desk during our working hours and yet we write work emails and reports from our living room sofa in the small hours of the morning. At least I do is it any wonder that we find it so hard to manage the differences between work and rest when we jumble the two so often? Recovering a sense of ordered time and being disciplined with our digital tools is central to fashioning a life with space for both creative work and recreative rest. The second thing that Benedict Incorporated, the 6th century management consultants, might say to us is that we need to learn obedience and discipline. This is not principally for the sake of preserving hierarchical domination or, on the other hand, a sort of whinging, resentful subservience, but rather it's for the sake of overcoming our own autocratic will for the benefit of others. Obedience for the monk is the practice of constantly being ready to suspend a purely individual will or perception for the sake of discovering God's will in the common life of the community. The rule is concerned with the pragmatic issues of organized common life and with the particular requirements this places upon the abbot. The abbot has to discern the needs and the common calling of the community, and when the individual monk obeys the abbot, Abbot, it is a submission to the outcome of a remarkably complex and nuanced process on the part of the abbot and the community as a whole. One of the most striking aspects of the rule for someone discovering it for the first time is what we might call the mirror effect in regard to obedience. The abbot has to listen and attend with intense concentration to the specific requirements and gifts of the individual members of the community. Indeed, this term obedience is derived from its Latin root, obediare, which means simply to listen deeply. Obedience is in this case concerned with a deep attentiveness to the life and the needs of the whole community. It is in this way profoundly self giving, oriented towards the needs of others and the common good of the whole. It's a culture that is full of trust and mutuality, for it depends on the principle that in the abbot, the needs and benefits of the whole community will find their proper fulfillment. When we are obedient, we not only overcome our own chaotic, confused, and capricious wills, but we also establish trust in those charged with preserving and promoting our good. So Williams concludes, if obedience is the silencing of the purely individual will, the abbot must above all be a model of this silencing, someone who will not pursue an individual agenda, but seek the immense, elusive goal of a common life in which each can recognize their good and their flourishing in the life they share and their mutual dependence. So let's also avoid the easy trap of thinking that obedience has to do with top-down command and control. For though the principle of obedience may be abused in this way, chapter 3 of The Rule of St. Benedict contains the reminder, the Lord often reveals what is better to the younger. This is perhaps a surprising but important perspective to remember in our common life. Thirdly, Benedict Incorporated, 6th century management consultants, might wish to say something to us about participation. Indeed, my little play on words is designed to reinforce this very point. We are incorporated into a common life. Rome Williams says this. One of the abbot's tasks is to find the sort of labor appropriate to the capacity of each. But this takes it for granted that each member of the community needs to be active in the common work of the community, even if they're unwell or not particularly competent. It's in chapter 48. Similarly, quote from the rule here, chapter 35, no one will be excused from kitchen service unless he is sick or engaged in some important business of the monastery. There is no work too lowly for anybody who is incorporated In community. The monastery both demands from each a positive and distinctive share in sustaining its life and also gives to each the dignity of responsibility for that life in every prosaic detail. This cannot be a community in which some live at the expense of others or in which some are regarded as having nothing to offer and are mere pensioners or objects of charity. Now this understanding of the value and the dignity of each person's contribution is vital in our day. We live in an age in which paid employment is seen as being the ultimate goal for determining any individual's worth or value to society. We can just about tolerate children and young people uh, while they're in the period of study and training so long as we have confidence that they will become productive and consumptive units in our economically defined culture. But the rule of St. Benedict stands against this way in asserting the value of every person. There is nobody who has nothing to offer. Nobody is an unwanted passenger. But it stands equally against any romantic notions that suggest that work and labor are somehow inferior to the life of the mind, the intellect, or soul. It resists any easy political categorization. It's neither on the side of the strivers or the skyvers, as some would divide it. Rather, the rule of St. Benedict presents a compelling vision of work which is humanizing and which enables common life together. If no one is exempt from the labor of both sustaining and of serving the whole community, no one should be without the expectation of support and what we now call advocacy. Participation In common life is also assurance that you will not suffer alone or be ignored. Think perhaps of those words of St. Paul in 1 Corinthians 12. Those parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. The parts that we think are less honorable we treat with special honor. God has put the body together, giving greater honor to the parts that lacked it, so that there should be no division in the body, but that its parts should have equal concern for each other. Participation is precisely about the expectation that everybody has a part to play and that others are attending to your best interests and seeking to value whatever it may be that you can contribute. The ruler of St. Benedict um, enshrines again that ambition of Scripture articulated in Philippians 2, that we might do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, we value others above ourselves, not looking to our own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. The rule of St. Benedict is, as should be obvious by now, a Christian work, rooted in and giving expression to the Christian conviction that human persons are made in the image of a God who works creatively and productively, but a God who also enjoys rest and recreation. Humanity, our human lives, find our ultimate fulfillment when we enter into these unforced rhythms of grace in which all the constituent parts of human society find their proper relation. So if we long for work, to make a life and not to take a life, then we must listen to the wisdom of the 6th century, embracing ordered time, cultivating obedience, deep attentiveness to the gifts and the contributions of others, and practicing participation, valuing all the different skills and gifts. At one of history's hinge points, at the dawn of a new age, there is ancient wisdom from Benedict Incorporated to inspire and to guide us. Thank you.